This is the Books Podcast presented by Tim Haig. This is the Books Podcast. Uh, we're talking to Philip Norman, who has written the definitive biography of Paul McCartney. You've already done John. You're famous for Shout, the, uh, the first important biography of the Beatles. Now, Paul, you quote... Uh, Rolling Stone magazine is saying that Paul, of all the rock stars in history, has done the least to fuck up his good luck. But you still found him interesting enough to write about. Yes. uh, For years, I sort of accepted the the view of Paul that Paul puts out, which is someone who's blessed with enormous talent, enormous charm, enormous good looks. Um, And therefore, one thinks is rather... Well, that is true. Yes. But you think that that makes somebody very self-satisfied... Um, but actually creative genius, which is what he has, uh, is never self-satisfied. I found him much more complex, um, uh, quite insecure, um, as insecure in his own way as John Lennon was. John Lennon's insecurity came from a a sort of dislocated childhood. Uh, Paul had a happy childhood, Um, but still this tremendously strong sort of remorseless creative urge that, that grips him. Uh, he's never really happy with anything he does in the same way that John wasn't. Do you think that's true, that he's not happy? Or is he just looking for new frontiers? Because he keeps restlessly finding a new form to write in, doesn't he? It's just um, the, the, the need to be in front of an audience, uh, the, the need to be on stage almost every night of his life as he enters his mid-70s um, and to receive that love and that approval as if it's not enough, you would think that this man has had more adulation than any human being could possibly absorb. But as I say in my book, this kind of adulation is a bit like Chinese food. It just goes straight through people like this and leaves them wanting more in another half an hour. Your uh, opening chapter is uh, uh, basically an account of your relations with the Beatles and the times you've met them and things. So, you know, it's, it's going to provoke a good deal of envy um you've you have of course met the beatles you've even you know, you've, you've spoken to paul and you've uh, met him recently um but this is not an authorized biography it, it's sort of authorized by the back door um he gave me what he called tacit approval uh, there was no way that his time of life he was going to sit down and plow through the beatles story all over again step by step and in, in fact i don't write the beatles story all over it step by step Paul is center stage and the story is happening a lot of it off stage Uh, but um, his so-called tacit approval uh, allowed me to talk to family members and very very close associates of his over the years who normally because of the huge loyalty that he commands would not talk to to a writer and family members in particular it's a it's a biggish book, but you don't you don't try and do every every day of his life, do you? It's not it's not a day in the life. It's not true. No, I, I try to sort of live every day of John's life. Uh, this is different because uh, the Beatles' audience is so enormous and so knowledgeable that one can mention something like the Ed Sullivan Show or or the Cavern Club in Liverpool, and people know what you mean. You know, so I don't have to simply go in for exposition for all of these sort of uh, locations and all these references. I should put my cards on the table. I am a, a Beatles anorak and, and a, a huge Paul admirer. I think he is a national treasure. In fact, I'm going to suggest that he's, he's the greatest pop star of, of all time. What do you think? Do you think that's fair? Well, he's so many things. I mean, he was part of the Beatles, uh, uh, who are simply unsurpassed, um, just because of 
the era that they were in and, and the, the, the legacy that they have created. But then he is also uh, the most uh, successful songwriter of all songwriters. Uh, um, so he, you can say he's perhaps the most famous person on the planet. Let's talk about that period just after the Beatles um, broke up, because you're very good on, on that. that. That's uh, partly where you hone in on, on the insecurities and, and the, the character of the man. Uh, he did have some pretty bad times. He was, he was not a happy bunny. Again, you think one thought at the time, Paul McCartney is just confident that he's going to go on and be solo Paul McCartney and he goes off and makes a solo album and it's all sort of smooth and a smooth transition to another band called Wings. wasn't that way at all. Um, really, Paul and Linda, his wife, and his brother-in-law, John Eastman, Linda's brother, um, and his lawyer by that time, were alone against the world, the world very much disapproving of him, but also the other three Beatles who had sidelined him very, very nastily, actually. Um, and the appointment of Alan Klein, brought in by John, um, he was, they were really sort of the little unit fighting uh, on their own. And Paul went off uh, to his farm in Scotland and had a sort of breakdown. Uh, now, John uh, went in for very, very public therapy. Paul also needed therapy, but he gave it to himself, really, or rather the Scottish Highlands gave it to him. But he was in a very bad way. He was uh, drinking very heavily. He was having a sort of breakdown. He was thinking that he was on the scrap heap, but uh, at the age of 27, which <laughs> yeah. is very extraordinary, um, because the Beatles had been so big. Um, he'd been so famous, now that was all over. And he was without this, these other three to whom he had been so close. I mean, they were, they, the closeness of the Beatles was extraordinary. Physical closeness, when they were um, still not very well known, driving around Britain in a van, and it was very cold in the van. Uh, they would lie in a pile in the back of the van. I mean, lie on top of each other so that the person underneath got warm. And then they'd switch over and the one from the bottom would go to the top of the pile. Um, they shared body warmth. That was how close they were. And you can hear the closeness, of course, in their harmonies too. Um, that was gone. So he felt very, very insecure, very, very lost. And it took a long time for Wings to catch on. People forget this. John, you know, was had really, you know, a lot of notice with his solo albums right away. If George Harrison had his global uh, mega album, all Things Must Pass. Even Ringo was doing rather well. <laughs> Paul had to wait really until Band on the Run to get both the... And Band on the Run was 1973. It was three. A, nearly three years after uh, yeah. the Beatles had broken up. And in that time, he was, he was selling records, but he was getting very horrible comments in the, in the media and in the press, uh, particularly as he chose to start right at the bottom. He put his new band into a van. They drove around Britain calling at universities to see if the students' union would like them to play. He would have done that with the Beatles if they'd let him. If, yes. if the Beatles had been prepared to get in a van, Paul would have driv driven them off to play he would. anywhere. Well, that's, you know, that is a measure of the musician that he is, and he still is, of course, that he will play anywhere uh, for, for anybody. You know, he'll play for a pet chimpanzee, you know, which he's done, you know. Um, it, just an audience of one chimpanzee. So, um, th yes, that is the measure of the performer, and that is the measure of the person who didn't want to give up the Beatles, um, because his fulfilment was communing with an audience. As so often in his life, he was right about Alan Klein, the manager that uh, that John brought in. He was proved triumphantly right that, that 
uh, Klein was a, a crook and um, and you know was going to rape the the the, the prophets. Um, so uh, this 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 period when he was uh, at odds with the rest of the Beatles was particularly difficult because uh, he because he was right, I suppose. Well, uh, I mean, Klein did uh, maintain to the end of his life that he had made the Beatles more money than they had ever made before. And he did sign them to a massive deal when it was obvious that they were going to break up with uh, American Columbia. Um, but it was worse than that. It was the terrible embarrassment of having already brought in uh, his wife Linda's father, Lee Eastman, um, and the Beatles having signed uh, Lee Eastman as general counsel to the Beatles and then John going off and finding Alan Klein and being kind of romanced by Alan Klein in, in a way um, and that was all dreadful because for a time Lee Eastman and Klein or rather uh, John Eastman um, uh, by then Paul's brother-in-law and Alan Klein were simultaneously running the Beatles that was a hideously embarrassing situation again you don't think of Paul McCartney suffering awful embarrassment but he did and um you you make a reference to him being the the brother-in-law. By that time, of course, he's married Linda, and again he's he's turned out to be right about that. It's it's the great the great marriage in 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 pop music of all time. They they clearly loved each other. They stuck to each other, and it, it was a happy a happy union. It was a tremendously successful marriage. Linda received um, horrible comments, um, almost as bad, sometimes worse than. Yoko received because for, for having cut out John from the Beatles. Um, it was sort of level pegging for a lot of time, which, which of those two were the more hated, was the more hated. Um, but what nobody again could imagine was this man, this wonderfully good-looking Paul McCartney. Every woman in the world wanted to sleep with him. That he quite a lot of them did. And quite a lot of them did, uh, sometimes several at once. Um, but still, that... He, what he really wanted was a, a secure home. And nobody could have known that Linda at that time would be the one to provide it. Uh, that was what she wanted. She had her own issues about childhood. And so what they both, what the sort of salvation of both of them turned out to be was having a home and a large family. And then, of course, she died rather rather unhappily and tragically of, of breast cancer, which obviously knocked Paul back. And he must have thought that he knew everything there was to know about romance because his next marriage was pretty much a disaster. And everybody everybody um, warned him against it as well, didn't they? How could he have got that so wrong? He'd been so right about so many things. And he was just so wrong about Heather. Well, if you're very right about many things, like releasing Mull of Kintyre at the height of punk rock... Which then instance. goes on to sell two yeah. and a quarter million copies yeah, in exactly. Britain, yeah. Yes, and being very right about Alan Klein. And, of course, it's very hard to tell someone like that that they are wrong. He was in a, a vulnerable state after such a long marriage, after such a terrible illness that Linda had suffered. Um, but there's, there was something in his makeup, something in his genes, that was caring and nurturing. Uh, this is because his mother um, had been a, a nurse and a midwife um, and he had seen his mother's tremendously sweet sort of giving, nurturing nature. Um, that was in him. And, of course, for a, a lot of Linda's illness, he was effectively her carer as well. And, in fact, he expressed it very succinctly when his friend Joe Flannery in Liverpool said, well, how could you, well, how could you have made such a mistake? He said it was because of... Um, Heather Mills had lost part of her leg and he said I looked at her leg and went ah he felt protective to her and yet everybody seemed to know it was very quick that uh, people 
uh, took against her. And, and of course, Paul was a national treasure. When she, she seemed to think that she was more important than Paul McCartney. Well, to begin with, in fact, people thought she looked nice and they were glad, uh, you know, that he'd found someone. So it wasn't like sort of, you know, it wasn't the same as in the case of Linda when everybody was against her and slowly warmed to her. Uh, in Heather's case, it went the other way. But much, much more quickly. Much, it, it went quickly, um, yes, the other way, and uh, um, there were you know, lots of questions asked about her background and uh, um, her attitude to facts, shall we say. Yes, uh, uh, she, she claims to have turned down a peerage from Sir Tony Blair. And, and to, to have been in the running for a Nobel Peace, Peace Prize, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, and the judge at the, at the divorce did say that she wasn't to be trusted, that she wasn't a, a reliable witness. What is so extraordinary uh, about... Heather uh, was and is that she is very very impressive she did fight her way out of a terrible childhood she became a successful model um, then she suffered an appalling accident she recovered from, she fought her way back from that to go back to modeling and uh, her campaigning uh, against landmines and all you know uh, her, her various causes were extremely impressive and she married Paul McCartney now, why would anyone who has those achievements want to embroider the, the facts? You don't need to, but it appears that she did. You um, talk about his, his caring side, Paul McCartney's caring side, and um, he, he has a reputation for parsimony, and yet you, you make very clear in the book, he's a very generous man. He's given a lot of money, time, uh, uh, considerations to oh, family, friends, but pe people he, he liked. Uh, why has he got this reputation for being mean? I'm not quite sure why. I think that in his sort of for a long time there wasn't um, a very sort of a str strong sort of public spirited sort of um, element visible. Um, but what he went on to do was quite extraordinary. I mean, get, you know, creating that performing arts academy in Liverpool, which had had a, a, a terrible time in the 1980s and really sort of the just you know awful things that happened in Liverpool race. and was a risk if, yeah, if yes. that hadn't worked yes. out yes, his name was plastered all exactly over. race you know riots and you know dereliction of the city and all the rest of it and that was the, the beginning of the road back to self-respect for, for Liverpool which it has now it's a huge success um, there was enormous investment not only uh, of money but of McCartney's time in that project um, and very, very generous in to, to people he knows who are in trouble medically. Horse Fascia, the bouncer, the old bouncer from the Hamburg days, um, Barry Miles, who was his biographer. Um, but I don't really know where it comes. There are pop stars who are very, very mean, mm. uh, um, but he's not. What he is as well is fantastically rich. He's extremely wealthy. I had no idea until I read your book how much property... He has. He seems to acquire property all the time, almost casually. Well, uh, in the two places where he settled in the UK, firstly in the Highlands of Scotland and then in Sussex, he had to sort of create a, a gigantic exclusion zone uh, to stop, uh, you know, marauding fans. So he had to buy up lots of other farms in Scotland and then he bought up other properties in Sussex. But yes, he seems to have more houses than one can possibly live in, um, in, in the States as well, um, to be overhoused, which has its own problems, I'm sure. I'm <laughs> sure it does. You seem to regard the, the drugs bust in Japan in 1979 as kind of 
almost a pivotal event in, in Paul's life. Uh, you trail it several times beforehand and you, you deal with it in detail. What is the significance of that drugs bust when he, he was... Well, I'll t let you tell me. Well, he was... <laughs> having been uh, banned from Japan uh, for his other drugs um, offences and then finally let in uh, in 19... Yes, the end of 79, the end of 80, actually. Um, and uh, all of... Uh, uh, all the band he took with him, being warned, don't go through your go, go, go through your luggage. Even the seams of your pockets don't have any drugs. And then he's caught with a big lump of hash at the airport, and is put into a, not a well, you know the sort of the story is it was he was held in a police station. He wasn't. He was put into the most horrific old-fashioned prison in Tokyo, along with uh, killers, convicted murderers. Um, the great significance of that, or the great or the revealing side of that, is that. He kind of enjoyed it. It was a relief. He could stop being Paul McCartney for a few days. He was prisoner number 22. I think he was in for 10 days or something. Well, yes, uh, not, not, in not, not, always, not, not the whole 10 days in that prison, but then there was some sort of technical reason why he went there for the last few days. Um, and it was kind of relief not to be Paul McCartney and also to sort of make the best of it, which is what he's always managed to do. Uh, it, optimism, sort of buoyant sort of spirits. And he likes a bit of adversity, doesn't he? Yes. I mean, you you you, you uh, detail his his approach to the farm in Scotland, which was that he got up on the roof and nailed those tiles on when it when the roof leaked. The other surprising thing about him, in fact, is that he can do almost anything on the sort of practical side as well as on the creative side. I mean, you could, we know he can do everything in music, um, but he can also. Um, Layer flight of concrete steps, you know, and will and does. Yeah, and does. He, there are a lot of people who are very capable who, you know, when they get to that level, they get a man in. But Paul likes doing that stuff. He does, and um, so you know, he, I, I can't really think of anything that he can't do <laughs> it, to some degree or other. And in that case, uh, that particular, you know, that that he 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 was sort of felt it was kind of kind of redemption, um, and he even thought perhaps that he might have been subconsciously asking to be busted. In the way that he was. Well, in in the same way that he he made Band on the Run famously in Nigeria in a studio that was was not really there. He had to bring uh, equipment in. He had to get them to build baffles and for for, uh, for for you know for the drums and things so that he could so that he could record in Nigeria. And he could have recorded in EMI Studio Number Two uh, as easily as anybody else. But no, he goes to somewhere that that presents him with a challenge. Well, it, it, he didn't realise quite what a challenge it was because he imagined Nigeria as just being sort of lovely, you know, women in colourful headdresses and you know, joy and laughter. And of course, it was a, a very difficult country uh, under a difficult regime. But once he was there, and of course, his most of his band defected just before. That's he right. Went the out the there. drummer and the guitarist just didn't turn up to the airport and said, "No, we're not coming." That's so right. he goes and does it anyway. Well, he just said, you know, I'm not going to be beaten. I'm going to do this. It's like the famous sort of Scottish tour for the Beatles. Uh, um, he just made the most of that. You know, he sort of wrote cheerful postcards to his dad saying, I may be signing some autographs tonight. Um, he does have this ability to, to accentuate the positive. But is he hard to work for? Quite a lot of people have quit. Uh, I mean, famous. Oh, I know why he gets a, a reputation for meanness. The, on the very first Wings tour, he's actually paying a, a small stipend to each of the uh, of the musicians and keeping all the money for himself. But then, you know, the, they weren't making any money anyway on those two. He wasn't making any money anyway. And he actually, uh, in the period when he was in Scotland and going through these terrible sort of inner turmoil, was get, running out of money. Uh, they were living on Linda's money. 
And he did not have an awful lot of money in those very early 70s. Um, but it's true that the, the, uh, it was very, very difficult to be in a band with uh, Paul McCartney and Linda. Uh, he wanted Linda with him. Uh, he wanted because so they could go on tours. He, he didn't have to be separated from her and later on from the children. And so he put her on... Uh, keyboards and she couldn't play but after a while I mean, the kind of thing she had to play on keyboards wasn't that difficult and she managed to, to, to master yeah the, the, you the know I, I, I saw the wings tour in 1979 and at the beginning of old siam sir where there's a piano f um, figure that, uh, that on the record it's it just wasn't there she wasn't up to playing that then and you did you did think a little you cringed a little in that embarrassment for her that she wasn't up to playing you did, but that was his choice. And, you know, for all of that, uh, Wings became vastly successful on the back of the glam rock uh, craze initially. And then, you know, as stadium rock increased in scope and size. Um, and, you know, in terms of just sort of ticket receipts, they were equaling or surpassing the Beatles in the next decade. Paul's been given practically every honour you could imagine he he could not be more successful they gave him the mba of course he's been knighted shouldn't he be ennobled shouldn't he be lord mccartney by now are there any obstacles to it i can't see that there would be and i'm sure he will be and when you think of some of the scruffy, well they gave it to lloyd webber scruffy types who have, <laughs> who have crept into the house of lords i mean he certainly has more cause i would think so too philip thank you very much my That's pleasure Paul McCartney, uh, the definitive biography by uh, Philip Norman. Uh, it's Weidenfeld and Nicholson. It's out now, and I think it's £25. Yes. A bargain. Thank you. That was The Books Podcast with Tim Haig. The Books Podcast is produced by Green Shoot. You can find out more at www.green-shoot.com and Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com.